Welcome to Tech Breakfast, today's top headlines served hot by your host Aaron Bewley and Tyler Gates. So grab your coffee and let's get into it. Good morning. Today is Wednesday, October 14th. Fun fact for today, on October 14th, 1968, the first live TV transmission from space was, uh, what, had held, pushed? I don't uh, actually know what uh, what sent, word to use there. Trans- transmitted? Transmitted. But that's that's redundant, right? First live TV transmission from space transmitted? I like it. I think it, I think it, I think it holds. I'm going to assume everyone gets the point. <laughs> and we're going to dive right into it. Russ, what do you want to kick us off with? Uh, well, I, I think it's something to, uh, you know, to kind of put in uh, or to, to relate to the opening there is is a pretty awesome announcement here. I don't know the details behind it, but it says NASA pledges to land the first woman on the moon by 2024. Uh, I, I'm excited about this for a couple of things. One, I think it's awesome that, uh, you know, we're going to send a woman. But I, I, I just like the idea that we're going back. Uh, yeah, I, I've always cool. wondered. It's like we went there in whatever it was, the 60s. And, and so, yeah, late 60s, early 70s. We we, <laughs> we went there and then we just stopped. Um, we just stopped <laughs> doing that. Box. Yeah, we, we did We're it. We're all so mooned we'll, out. <laughs> no, no need to ever try anything like that again. So I just, I, I like the idea that we're doing this. I wonder what's the driving factor. Is it that we want to get the first woman there or is there more behind it? You know, I, I think there's more behind it. Um, and I'm, uh, okay. Yeah, no, here it is. So, um, I saw another article. I have not read it yet. I actually just kind of clicked it off to the side and that's why I didn't have it handy, but, um, the U S and seven other countries, uh, sign NASA's Artemis Accords to set rules for exploring the moon. So apparently there's a resurgence in moon exploration globally, mm. which is, I think, awesome uh, for various reasons. We've talked about some of the projects that uh, I know NASA is doing and some of the other countries around the world are doing to potentially put, you know, telescopes on the dark side of the moon, as an example, or, uh, you know, other major sort of research projects that require some significant engineering efforts on the surface of the moon. Um, obviously, we've done a lot of good science to get us there, get us back, uh, do various things on the surface of the moon. But I, unless I'm mistaken, we haven't done major large-scale you know, like production arrays or anything like that on the moon to date. So there's probably a lot we need to kind of suss out to make sure that those projects are successful. And uh, if if that resurgence is something uh, where maybe we were sort of on the precipice of the technology that enables stuff like that mega telescope array, as an example, um, it, it makes sense then that lots of other countries kind of simultaneously have this new want to get out there and do it. Um, so it's, it's nice to see, uh, I guess, nations agreeing to work together peacefully for moon exploration because... You know, that's one of those frontiers where do you show up, plant a flag in the ground, and now that's your part of the moon? How much of the moon do you get? <laughs> where do you get to plant your stuff? You know, it, it, there's this could easily go down a pretty crappy hole, and I, I don't think we need space wars on the moon, certainly not in the uh, spirit of space research, right? Yeah. Um, I, so. I think there's an interesting thing here from the article that maybe would surprise people. It surprises me a little bit. It says, we're going back to the moon for scientific discovery. That part makes perfect sense. Um, <laughs> Check. Economic benefits. 
which huh. a lot of people have always talked about the sort of economic detractors that it takes in order to get to the moon. So, so that's an interesting did, piece of the line there. Did they double click on that? What, what are don't. these? No, this is very, okay. very limited. Um, and it says, and an inspiration for a, a new generation of explorers, which, which I can definitely get behind. It says, yeah, as we build I'm up a sustainable presence, we are also building momentum. Here's where it gets exciting. Towards those first human steps on the red planet. Yeah, buddy. So it looks like we're really starting to open this thing back up, which is crazy considering the last time that we really attempted anything like this and, and then succeeded was in uh, Apollo lunar mission in 1972. 72, okay. 72, yeah. I was thinking 69 was towards the end of that, but I guess not. So that's that's crazy. Um, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm all for this. I love space exploration. I, I certainly don't think we've exhausted... Um, what we can and should be doing on the moon. I'm excited that we're um, making it more of a diverse play as well. It's actually fascinating, but not all that surprising that we haven't sent a woman to the moon yet. Um, Do you know how long it took to get to the moon? Do you remember? Like from the beginning of the race? Well, from launch to land. Oh, launch. You're talking about like a mission. Like, Um, yeah, like actual physical time. I mean, a couple months. Something like that, right? To get there. That seems like a lot, actually. I um, feel like, I feel like, but I, I guess that makes it's possible. I honestly don't know off the top of my head. I'm not sure. Um, uh, I, I know who does. You, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. No, no, no. It's, it's way faster than that. It's, uh, yeah, I was thinking, I was thinking, I was thinking like it was like hours or days. Um, so maybe it would take longer than that to get to the red planet, but it was, it was not that long at all, actually. It was three days. Oh, it was, okay, so it was days, not yeah, not it hours. was I days, sure. not I, hours. It makes sense. We probably probably two hundred and forty thousand miles. <laughs> that's awesome. So they're moving pretty quick. That's that's neat. That'd be fun to go back and, and read into. Yeah, because um, what the Mars is months away, right? Something like I, I'm seven. just assuming. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. Um, well, I, I remember that. I think we talked about that a little while ago, and Aaron googled it on the show. I was thinking it was years, but it's not. It's it's actually quite a bit closer than Mars that. would be about seven months. So seven months, yeah, so it's yeah, pretty considerably further. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, that's going to present so many additional challenges. I guess what I was wondering was thinking that it took you know at least a month to get there and it ended up being three days. So I was completely off on that. Uh, <laughs> I was wondering if you know whatever it is, fifty some odd years later, if we were going to be able to do it faster. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't know, no, but, uh, I, it sounds wonder, like we did it pretty efficiently. I bet not to be honest. Right. Cause if you think that the physics of escaping mm-hmm. earth's, uh, gravitational pull is not unchanged, right? right. It hasn't changed. And then you've got all of the math to kind of take the closest approach of the moon from wherever you're launching. And you got to think about, how quickly whatever shuttle that gets to the moon is going to be whipping around it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there's got to be an optimal, okay, this is how fast we're moving around the, the orbit of like a lunar orbit orbit to get a lander down. I guess you could tweak that some, but I, I wonder if it's even feasible to do, you know, like, could you do it a day faster? Can we accelerate that much more and still be able to do what we want to do on the far side without, you know, needing a ton more fuel to slow down or something like that. Right. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if they actually just kind of nailed that. It, in it the, may uh, not be that much that valuable for a moon trip, but mm-hmm. compared to seven months, um, oh, I'm yeah. sure that there is a, a balance of 
supplies to sustain humans versus supplies to navigate this, you know, to, to make the ship navigate the, the moon and, or I'm sorry, the, sure. to Mars or whatever else. So it, it actually says it, the, it's interesting. It says the time it takes to travel between uh, earth and Mars would actually wage between six to eight months. So I do wonder what causes that range of two months. I wonder if it's some of the theoretical designs for the engines that they're going to use to get there. So you, they have a lot of different sort of, uh, I guess they'd be speculative because. Oh, it says when it is taken um, because. It, oh, because of. It makes sense. Because, yeah. Well, because the orbits are not perfectly circular. That actually makes. Yeah, that makes sense. It's very simplistic. It makes a lot of sense. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, okay, so well, then there you go. People stay in the International Space Station. Um, for just under seven months, so I guess they probably stay around six months. That's so I guess we at, le- at least have some idea of of what it takes to be in space for that long. Well, yeah, the, and they've they've done some of the experiments uh, where where people have stayed like a full year in the space station, if I'm not mistaken. I know they've done some of the ones just to yeah. check like the psychological isolation effects. They've locked people in capsules in uh, cities and stuff like that, and uh, it, it's it takes a toll. Um, physically, yeah, mentally, like every everything about being cooped up in something that small and not, you know, exposed to what we're used to nature-wise is uh, pretty extreme for humans. So I, I know just from some of the stuff that I've read that that's a huge hurdle that we need to overcome is there there are not that many people that can do that well. and And that's just getting there. then then you got to be there doing stuff and it's probably not going to be real friendly environments and then you know assuming you're planning on coming back you've got the return trip as well there's a there's a long long travel uh itinerary there for anybody trying to go there and back well man or woman it's going to take a special crew of people to, to be able to pull that off so but that's cool. But a lot um, of cool tech too. I, I get that the like that'll that'll drag us forward a long bit. I would expect because I'm sure a lot of what we're going to do is just how do you sustain a crew, absolutely in a seven month period in space sure. and some of those advances making it uh, comfortable to some extent because uh, you know the the moon exploration we've done any of the you know, astronaut based space exploration we've done the ISS included. It, it is heavily slanted towards the research side and sort of, you know, the minimum safe that you can get away with a seven month voyage before you even start your research, you have to shift some of the balance in that equation. So I, I'm guessing we're going to see some stuff that is a little bit more reminiscent of the, you know, futurology of old where you start to see more green and, and things like that and sure. more livable areas in uh, in some of the transport vessels even which is cool i could yeah. be totally wrong but i would expect <laughs> that they need it to be honest. i would expect those things to come too but i i think we can move on i think we've beaten that yeah one yeah yeah That's we did we did going. space travel's uh, fun <laughs> <laughs> you have any other ones i i there's there's a I, bunch of interesting things out there that are maybe not our typical yeah. So well, since Aaron's not here to stop us, I say we do what we want. No. Um, <laughs> that I, so I mentioned at the end of yesterday's show something that I, I think we should talk about briefly today if for no other reason than it's a fun sort of educational topic. Also space-related, so it makes a good tangent. We uh, captured, quote-unquote, in real time, 
the spaghettification of a distant star. And spaghettification is a very real word. Um, and it is, uh, so, so there's a great little write-up about this on space.com. Uh, there's also a good one on Ars Technica um, in their, um, I think, space section. But, um, or maybe it's science, I guess it's the science uh, umbrella. Anyways, the spaghettification of a star is when a star wanders too close to a black hole, in this case, a supermassive black hole. And what happens physically is pretty well defined, but we haven't watched it happening. And I, I say in real time as if I'm doing giant you know, air quotes, because this particular star is 215 million light years away from Earth. Light years Whoa. away from Earth. A, a one light year, just, just for reference, right? One light year is the distance that light travels in a year, right? So it is a measure Correct. of distance that is 6 trillion miles or 10 trillion kilometers away from Earth. That's one light year. That's 250 million times 10 trillion kilometers away. So we're not watching anything about that in real time. This is literally <laughs> gajillion years ago. Um, that we're that we're seeing, you know, it's it's 215 million years ago. This sun or sun-like star was swallowed by a black hole, and we're just getting to see what happens. And the spaghettification is when it wanders too close to this supermassive black hole, which it, it is in this case a supermassive black hole. So one of the black holes that's at the center of galaxies. We have one in uh, in in our galaxy, or sorry, uh, our our yeah, our galaxy as well. The the um, the Milky Way, but uh, when the sun gets too close, it starts to uh, pull matter off of it in strings, and it fires off these massive plumes of radiation. Um, it, so while it's swallowing it, it is just erupting, um, you know, particulate basically, but energy out of of the sides of it. And we we've known this should happen theoretically, I guess, for quite some time, but we actually watched it and recorded it um, from a number of telescopes and when, when a star like that how do we gets do that how does someone <laughs> how does someone come up with an idea in their head they're like you know what i think i will be able to see this thing that is a quadrillion kabillion kazillion miles yeah. away yeah and and then view this and record it and that's that seems like so, something that we can make happen so i think i actually have a little bit of an answer there because this is something that i like to read into every once in a while far from an expert i don't claim to be one but um we, we are constantly doing research about what, uh, what we can do to prove empirically more and more and more or, or not disprove in an attempt to disprove Einstein, basically, what happens where we think a black hole is Always to, chasing build, that guy. to build the evidence that black holes are, in fact, there and that they are doing what they're doing because light does not escape a black hole. So you have to look at what happens around it right. to sort of prove that it's there because it, it, you can't see it. Right, it doesn't emit radiation. That's not entirely true. There's some really interesting things like Schwarzfield radiation and stuff like that. But um, so we're looking for events, and in cases like this, uh, which wasn't in the article, but I'm going to go ahead and guess it. I'm going to toss it out there, and somebody's welcome to correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> we we probably saw behavior of a star near what we estimate to be the center of a of a galaxy, which we would expect to have a supermassive black hole. And I, I forget what makes 
supermassive versus just a black hole. I don't know if it's just the center of a galaxy or if it's based on estimated mass and it crosses a certain threshold. Maybe it's based on how many suns it's spaghettified. Yeah, pretty much. Anyways, when we start to see them close to each other, we watch them more closely. And this might be one like that. And we just got lucky because this was 215 million years ago. It probably happens pretty fast in uh, astronomical scales. Better to be lucky Um, than good sometimes. Right. So so I know we've done stuff like that when we find binary stars, stars that get really close to each other and start to accrete each other's matter and then can collapse and potentially turn into supernova. That's something that we've done to sort of validate standard candles, stuff like that. So I assume this is something similar to that. Um, and uh, and, and it, uh, apparently it was really cool. And it's the first time that we've actually sort of recorded it happening. They have some neat um, pictures uh, in the actual um I guess scientific papers that are out there, which I, I suggest going out and looking at because everything else you see is going to be an artistic rendition of what spaghettification looks like, right? Because as, as so many things in deep space, you know, what you see through the lens, um, assuming you're even looking at the visible spectrum, is not as pretty as the artistic <laughs> renditions of what's actually happening. Sure. So they tend to write the articles that you find online with uh, an artistic rendition, which are fascinating and gorgeous and I love them. But uh, but even the real, the very real pictures are also pretty cool. But I thought that was cool because spaghettification is an awesome word, and it know, is an awesome word. Black holes. What was the other like one? There were some a, other. That's going to be a name someday for someone. There you um, go. There's which instead other of what, are we what was about? it? Elon's. No, no, no. I was going to say um, there was a f- another fun one about the size and scope. Uh, maybe it wasn't in this article, but the um, the I, I guess the star that was swallowed. Um, was actually similar in size to our sun, which is pretty fascinating, right? Because in in our solar system, the sun just dwarfs everything and makes us feel tiny. And this black hole ate it for lunch. (laughs) Uh Oh, that's a little concerning. But let's not let's not worry about that right now. (laughs) I think we're safe. Cool. Uh, What else you got? Well, this was pretty interesting. The biggest World War II bomb found in Poland um, exploded. Whoa! Yeah, it was being diffused and, and it exploded. It's, so uh, it's I assume no that's bueno. sad news. Well, you know they. Uh, it says all mine divers were actually outside of the danger zone. So I have a feeling that awesome. during the, you yeah, know, during the something. process, they said to themselves, "They're like, this doesn't look good. We should run." Uh, and they cool. did, and they got out. But there is a video. That's awesome. I'm watching it right it. now. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, so it happened underwater, which <clears throat> I guess is probably the best case scenario. Um, they have evacuated the area, but apparently the bomb was dropped Ooh. by the RAF in 1945 in an attack on the German cruiser Lutzow. Uh, it seems like it was maybe not successful. Uh, so it weighed nearly 5,400 kilograms, half yep. of that being explosives. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and and so it is underwater the video is freaking awesome highly suggest everyone go look at that um i'm looking at it on rotors.com and um it was kind of unfortunate it was in a canal so the canal is pretty heavily damaged right now. oh yeah <laughs> yeah that's that's ugly so they've got a lot of repair but yeah it looks like everybody got away safely which is awesome and I'm assuming that we're really lucky this was underwater, too. Uh, that's kind of what I'm thinking. Uh, I, I have a feeling that underwater made it a little bit more uh, safe to, to try Muted. and do something about. But at Maybe. the same time, it was being its proximity to, to uh, 
That's uh, you know, people, they probably had to do something. They just, once they found it, they're like, oh crap, we need to do something about this thing. Gosh, that's a huge bomb. It is. And it's just crazy to me that we're still, and I'm, I'm sure that we will probably forever be finding yeah. things from, from that era, from just a, a crazy time in, in humanity. Yeah. Well, and I know countries all over the world, they have lots of uh, landmines are still uh, littered. I know Cambodia and, and a lot of Southeast Asia has issues with uh, landmines. There, there are a few other places in the world I've read recently where um, to this day, they still, uh, you know, will, will have folks going out into the wilderness and, you know, seeking them and they're always looking for new technologies and stuff like that but like <laughs> go go google some of the videos to watch people just walking around and disarming uh landmines by hand it's God, uh, it's actually nuts. horrifying and fascinating all at the same time but yeah there's a lot of that um there's bumps, uh bumps at bad. texas tech uh, where where i went to school they 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 have the largest vietnam memorial in the world or at least they did oh, i didn't know that when I, when i went there i don't know if it's still the case uh, and it's funny because they still find things all the time for Vietnam, which is a obviously a more sort of condensed uh, sure. episode that we had. And it's it's crazy. I actually remember going there and seeing that they had a, I don't know the, the right term, maybe it was a defunct or just, it was a landmine that didn't, like it, it was defective. It didn't go off yeah, yeah. whenever it was triggered. And so it, they, I, that's the only in, you know, in-person landmine sort of thing I've ever seen. And it's just crazy to think about seeing someone go around and they're, they're fairly, I don't know, they're very devious looking. And it's, I couldn't yeah. imagine being the person who has to walk around trying to defuse. Trying to find it disarm. Things. Yeah. It sounds awful. No thanks. Yeah. Especially in, you know, especially with Vietnam, which was such a difficult sort of terrain to navigate. So well, yeah, that's pretty nuts. And, and like hundreds of thousands of these devices were, were, placed in those parts of the world I know. it's it's not a small number that's why we're still finding these things Absolutely. and they were intentionally buried so they were hard to find just because they didn't go off if they were triggered which some have not been triggered at all yet right yep. um doesn't mean that they're safe the like there's there's still a bomb <laughs> no you totally should but that wouldn't no. go off the beaten path very far nope not happening. um not happening <laughs> Oh, well, that's interesting. And that, again, video is cool. Go check it out. Um, let's see. What else we got? Uh, oh, here's a good one. Um, another Google moonshot, one that I was completely... Oh, familiar. yeah. I saw uh, that. Alphabet Mineral is what it was called. Uh, is It reveals a crop-inspecting AI-powered robot. So I read... Uh, it was a fairly short article on from the BBC about it, but basically they're like little carts that drive over crops um apparently it doesn't matter what kind of crops they specifically referenced uh, strawberries and um uh a bean um soybeans i think but these these uh robots are actually in independently looking at like every single leaf and every single berry on the plants so they're quite literally like counting beans in some cases and looking at the health of various things and and the goal is to find trends that might actually help more specialized sort of treatment of crops um instead of a field you get down to like a row or even the individual plant and having specific treatments to try to increase crop yield or sustainability and stuff like that may allow mixing of crops to even get better at uh you know, again, improving yield or sustainability. So I thought that was really cool. And it was, it, not there, it is. I was aware of 
there's there's a lot of I, this surprises people. I think I was surprised by it, but I've seen you know in our industry we always see interesting ways that technology is used that maybe you didn't think about in order to usually it's to you know increase the efficiency of business, which obviously crops, farming, et cetera, they, they are big and very important business to, to really our sustainability. And it's interesting to see how much technology goes into them when you don't think about it. Like you don't think oh, gosh, about yeah. how much technology goes into farming when the reality is when you think of IOT, internet of Highly things, it's actually one of the, the biggest use cases is, is farming. Yep. And so it's, it's cool to see Google getting involved here. I like the name of the, uh, the robots that are doing this called the plant buggy. <laughs> That's kind of awesome. Something you would see in a Disney cartoon. So it's just, uh, it's pretty cool to see this going through. I, I hope that uh, a lot of good things come from this and we get more efficient with the way that we're, you know, obviously managing, growing, and maintaining crops and, and food sources. So it's, it's really a, a cool yes. piece of tech that they're working on here. And is fr- from all the autonomous type of work we see being done. I think this is one of the ones that's going to have a much more immediate application that yeah. we can do and, and it will be very beneficial for us, which well, is great. And there's there's some really fascinating um, articles and, and just even sections of books, or I'm sure books in their entirety, that are based on you know, what, what happened historically with the sort of agricultural community and some of the waves that we went through. Uh, I was that book that I mentioned a little while, the enlightenment now by Steven, uh, Plinker, Pinker. Anyways, um, it has a section that was sort of dedicated to, uh, some of the predictions about what global population growth was going to do. And, and there was a lot of sort of bleak outlooks. If we keep going down this path, it's sure. completely unsustainable. We're all going to die. And that's where you got, a lot of countries that started to like pull back on, uh, you know, how many children families were allowed to have and things like that. The one child policy in China, for instance, was probably one that most people are familiar with. But what was really interesting um, is that all of those predictions were so, so very wrong. And it, it turns out that human ingenuity was able to not just stave off this apocalypse of not being able to feed everyone, but dramatically improve how efficient every square foot of farmland was to the point where we actually have, if I'm remembering this correctly, less farmland now, definitely per capita, than we've ever had before. And yet we're still producing wildly more food, um, which is it's just really cool. Awesome. And it, it's like the whole point of that book, or at least the first half of it, was kind of give you hope about where we are. Um, and so that was one of the ones where the threat of not being able to feed the world is incredibly, incredibly low now because of technology and because of what we can do with, again, human human ingenuity and how far it's taken us. Um, our issue is making sure everyone gets fed. There are certain you know, geopolitical things that prevent us from getting the food we have in abundance to the people that need it in certain areas. But food itself, we have enough of it. And we will continue to as long as we're smart about stuff. That doesn't mean we're always going to have the same food because I know that overfishing is a problem. But that's a that's a different conversation, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's it's incredibly interesting just the fact that we're able to pull those things off. And quite frankly, you know, if we don't raise the alarm, probably none of that stuff happens anyway. So oh, yeah. we may be over-rotated. It's, it's still a good thing. Speaking I of so. some of this technology, uh, you know, when you talk about Internet of Things, the, the farming technology we just discussed, obviously a big enabler of that are our networks. And we did see some some news come out. I think this was in the Apple event, or at least maybe Tim made a comment yesterday about how 
Verizon was all over the Apple event. And I think it's important to know why. So obviously, 5G is a big deal. Um, I think the iPhone 12 has 5G capabilities. There's a bunch of other phones that have some form of 5G capabilities. But there are different ways to achieve 5G. And it's actually been sort of a way of... I don't know. It's been an, it, sort of at least a topic of argument for the different carriers of what way is the best, obviously. And, and Verizon has very staunchly been defending this way of doing it called uh, five millimeter wave. The problem with five millimeter wave, even though it is incredibly fast, um, it is the fastest way to deliver 5G by far. Awesome. Uh, it can pretty much travel like five feet and it can't go through. <laughs> um, is that so important? it just. It legitimately, it cannot get into buildings unless you pipe it into a building. In there, yeah, sure. So it's just, you know, a lot of people are wondering, it's like, well, how is this useful for humans? Like it's maybe useful for other things. Uh, But why are we putting this in our phones if we can only use it for standing on a specific street corner somewhere? And I think that's a wonderful argument. Well, Horizon's announcement yesterday was them putting sort of a, uh, a a lower range of, of 5G and through a different spectrum that they are sharing and it will kind of run alongside LTE that is very similar to what you're seeing from AT&T or T-Mobile or basically the other carriers. And and that was the idea. So it's it's a sub-6 cool. gigahertz version of 5G that will uh, okay. run faster than LTE, not as fast as 5 millimeter wave, but it'll have sort of the traditional yeah. coverage map you would get you know, with you know lte that's, and that's what that's great out. and it's a big announcement and and i i mean props to him for doing the right thing what's unfortunate about that is that if you keep everything like that under the 5g moniker which you have to it is a generational mm-hmm. gap and they're happening at the same time it's, it's going to confuse a lot of people people are going to buy phones that are 5g enabled and they're going to get lte like speeds instead of the you know four gigabit per second speeds that you can get with millimeter wave for instance which is exactly I, I don't, why verizon argued against the idea of of doing this it, it felt like <laughs> verizon was like why are we going to do 5g if we're not doing it right, it's like even if it's yeah, not for just, every phone I don't know. Either. Don't call it five G. Call it LTE plus. Even though I know that that is wrong too, it's less confusing. I I agree with you. Actually, uh, I I felt like that it just was strange to just say, okay, cool, we're going to use the same form of delivery mechanism we do for yeah. LTE, but it will be faster. It's like, well, why don't you just say LTE got faster? Yeah, uh, and then it, have five G for you- whenever you're actually going to be you know, leveraging. Yeah. And if you're going to support both, great. Following. You can say 5G supported, but people, I don't know. I, 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 maybe I'm giving them more credit than I should. And I'm thinking <laughs> that they weren't, uh, you know, trying to be nefarious by, by doing that. But I think it's just, it's unfortunately confusing. It's, you're calling it something to get people excited. Maybe the people that are going to be confused wouldn't be excited anyways. And this is a moot point, but um, it's, yeah, at, that it's iterative. Don't, yeah. don't call it a generational jump. In my right. Opinion. Well, you know, I guess I'll benefit from it. I'm a Verizon customer, and I did order a phone that is going to support both. Uh, there so you it's, go. You know, that'll be nice. But I will say, I don't know. Obviously, I always want to progress tech, always, 100 percent of the time. But I will tell you that I could stream a 1080p, 60 frames per second video on my phone pretty much anywhere that I go. <laughs> and so I, I don't tend to run into issues where I'm yeah. limited. Yeah, by my is your problem? <laughs> yeah, it's just so. I'm glad it's getting faster. Don't get me wrong, especially. If that allows more people to do things well, at a given time, the, uh, but I didn't have a problem with it before. The only reason I get excited about something like 5G when we're talking about being able to stream to your phone's basically limitless bandwidth to a limitless number of people in a small space, yep. obviously limitless, that's extreme, but 
what what's cool there is that you can pull that thread a little bit and realize that you might actually get competition for your landlines, right? Because if I can get a wireless signal from a carrier to my house that is as fast or nearly as fast yep. as a fiber connection from an AT&T or a Verizon or a Frontier, then A, competition goes up. And as long as the mobile carriers start to make offerings like the land carriers do, well, they don't have data caps and it's just sort of unfettered, which they might be able to do with 5G technology because it is so fat of a pipe. Then we're talking about some major changes in how I consume connectivity. So I, I, I want them to be successful here. I want to see more and more of it. But uh, I have a feeling for a while they're just going to get in their own ways, to be honest. Uh, yeah, I do not expect this to replace Wi-Fi, but I do expect for them to um, be able to provide speeds to homes uh, more easily. And I think we're going to see a lot more above ground type of offerings. And, and you know, to give one example, and I, th- I think we need to wrap this up, but I'll just we close do, it yeah. with this, is that, you know, the millimeter wave technology is going to be great for scenarios where traditional wireless technologies just don't work very well, such as, mm. say, at sporting events or concerts. <laughs> whatever that might be. So we're seeing people or Verizon in particular putting 5G equipment inside of like inside of stadiums. Um, yeah, all, all over which the makes place. sense. So it's definitely going to improve things like that where, yep. you know, you, you're all jammed and if, up. You can't. And actually if everyone's ever been in an event like that where you can't make a phone call or send an SMS, it's extremely frustrating. That only happened to me once because I don't go to major Especially if event. you're trying to find someone. <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> like no, that's that. exactly it's extremely frustrating. For sure. So that, that'll um, be what will come from this, and I look forward to that. Yeah, cool. I'm going to do a couple of rapid-fired ones, and then I'm going to wrap it up here. So the Oculus 2 headset is now officially available. It's available Mine's coming for, today. Uh, $299. Oh, it is. Ooh, yep, we're going to have to get us a rundown. Might have to get our uh, senior XR correspondent back that's on. Right. Got to get Daniel and, uh, on here. And get Daniel to, to dig into it with us, too. Um, uh, I'm going to wait for Aaron to come back to actually talk about this, but if anybody wants to read ahead, there is a Wired story that talks uh, about other folks, uh, in this case, a uh, well, a Wired editorial, I guess, uh, that's skeptical about how good Apple's announcements are for the environment with the lack of headsets and stuff. And uh, I'm going to take points there. So, <laughs> and um, <laughs> uh, there, there was another cool article I saw that doesn't require a lot of conversation, but uh, Stanford just opened up over 150 computer science courses. I saw that. These are on-prem right. courses that are being streamed freely uh, online. So you can go and you can get that. And that was uh, what a uh, www.classcentral.com um, and it's Stanford on-campus courses. If you want to Google that, you can find it. Go Very cool. get your learn on. And that brings today's Tech Breakfast podcast to a close. Russ, it was fun kind of just doing us. but It was. Um, it's way better without Aaron here, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's edge him out. We'll change the URL and not invite him to the next one. Yeah, I think that'll work just fine. Oh, his intros are so much better than mine. Though. Yeah, he's a, he's a smooth talker. Maybe we do need him back. I know. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And if you got anything that we missed, general feedback, please give us a shout. Let us know on Twitter. Uh, what are, We've got techbreakfastpodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to come on the show and join us, of course, we'd love to have you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. And as a reminder, we have a Patreon now. So if you love what we're doing, go check it out. Thanks a lot. Later. <laughs>